This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, our guest is the Condor Airlines Director of Sales for the Americas. We talk about Condor's plans for the North American market and learn what an airline director of sales does. In the news, we look at what happened at the recent FAA Aviation Safety Summit sessions that focused on commercial operations, the air traffic system, airport and ground operations, and general aviation operations. Also, the Russian fighter and the MQ-9 Reaper drone, longer recording time for cockpit voice recorders, and a push to ban lap infants on commercial flights. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 742 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight. With me is first David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, everyone. Uh, Sorry I missed last week, but you probably wouldn't want to have heard my voice, and I didn't want to subjugate Max to any additional editing that he would have had to do for it. But looking forward to um, a lovely conversation this evening, and hopefully the voice will hold out. Yes, I hope it does. Also with us is Rob Mark. He's a contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI. He spent 10 years of his career at the FAA as an air traffic controller and supervisor. And of course, he publishes the Jetwine blog. Hey, good evening. It's uh... Nice to be here from beautiful downtown Chicago, where it was 48 degrees today, I think. So it's trying to be spring. Yeah. Oh, in fact, today is the first day of spring, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I think it is, actually, yeah, now that you right. mention it. Well, also with us, uh, well, not with us, is Max Trescott. He's <laughs> His internet is down, apparently, so uh, he can't join us. But pinch hitting for Mr. Trescott is our main man, Micah. Hey, great to be here, and thanks for inviting me. And boy, to be called in to pinch hit for Matt Trescott, what an honor. We're really happy to have you, Micah. Well, let me introduce our guest for this episode. That's Miko Tertainen. He's Director of Sales for the Americas for Condor Airlines. Now, Miko was recently appointed to that position. He's responsible for leading sales, strategy, and growth in North America. He's also in charge of continuing to build Condor's brand awareness and sales from consumer and B2B channels in the U.S. and Canada. Previously, Miko had a long career at Finnair, most recently as president global sales. He also served on Finnair's commercial leadership team. He additionally spent four years based in New York, heading Finnair North America. So, Miko, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thank you very much, Max, and and uh, it's an honor to be part of this of this community today. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Well, we're really looking forward to uh, talking to you now. Of course, Condor is, a, is well known as a German leisure airline, operating a fleet of, I believe, around fifty aircraft, both Boeing and Airbus. And Miko, uh, I understand that there's a number of new Airbus Neo aircraft coming into the fleet. Correct, Max. Uh, we had our first flight over the Atlantic uh, to New York about four weeks ago with the 330-900, so with the NEO. And uh, 
we did have a, an event around that where we did have media and some of our uh, top agencies from the New York area and I uh, wanted to showcase the, the, the new aircraft that we have where we do have a new interior, new cabins on board. So, so a new business class, premium economy and economy. So we're really excited. And uh, I think adding to the excitement is that we've also kind of changed, uh, adjusted our brand identity. So nowadays our, our aircrafts are also painted with uh, with the stripes of different colors. So we have the, the, the red, the blue, the green, and the yellow and the gold color kind of, uh, or, or sand color. So um, it is an exciting time at, at, uh, at Condor. And, and whenever you get a new aircraft, you know, coming in and, and our long haul fleet being renewed by, by pretty much summer 2024, uh, it's ex- extremely exciting, both internally, but also hopefully externally for, for the passengers that do fly Condor. I've got to say, I love the new paint scheme. And when I first saw it, I started thinking back when I was a kid, there used to be beech nut fruit stripe gum. And so I see the orange stripe, the lemon stripe, the blue raspberry stripe, the spearmint stripe, and the peppermint stripe. I love them. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Yeah, you can't miss this uh, these aircraft for sure. They, uh, uh, they, they really do stand out. Uh, compared to about everything else out there. I have gone as far as uh, in a few interviews saying that I think it's the most eye-catching uh, brand and livery that's out there if you look at, you know, basically aircrafts, but I might be a bit biased on that. No, I think you're correct. I, I really do. I really do. But uh, let's talk about the the market position of Condor a little bit. We call it a, a leisure airline. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about, uh, Miko, about uh, what that means to be a a leisure airline and how that's uh, different from an LLC or an ultra low cost carrier, or all the different types of airlines. And we tend to, to categorize airlines. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how Condor uh, is, is positioned. It's a great point. And I think the position is even slightly, you know, you know, moving that the needle might be slightly going from, from a, a very traditional leisure and, and charter option for the German consumer where through this new product and 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 the, and the new aircraft that we have, we're bringing a lot of premium seats. So we're also putting a lot of emphasis uh, on the North Atlantic, where we have uh, quite a quite a strong network, especially over the summer season, and and also have strengthened our our, our winter capacity. So so uh, Condor still remains to be the top leisure airline uh, in the German market for leisure travel, but also where we are doing a lot of the positioning and I would even say repositioning of Condor is over the Atlantic and, 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 and where my responsibility falls. So here in the, in the U S and Canadian market where we do need to reposition and, and, and especially with, with the abundance of premium seats that we have coming in with the Airbus 33900 Neo. Miko, let me uh, ask you a question. If, if I can, the concept of a, of a leisure airline is something that is really not really well known within the USA. Uh, we don't have any uh, leisure airlines that I can think of offhand uh, where, you know, in Europe, it, it, they're very popular. I can think of well, Monarch is one that I know because a friend of mine used to fly for them before they, they went away. Can you sort of explain what a leisure airline is for our listeners that may not be aware of that term? Yeah, sure. Sure. Great point. So, um, when I talk about leisure airline and Condor being a leisure airline, this means that we do service in our in our destinations and the and the network that we have uh, a lot for the holiday makers and and that leisure traveler. We work very closely with the tour operators um, in Germany as well as in Europe in regards to them building packages to the Canary Islands, to the Greek Islands, long haul to the Caribbean. Uh, the Seychelles, the Maldives. 
where 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 the tour operator is packaging and Condor is then that airline taking them to that leisure destination. So so um, in that sense, different from from I guess what we're used to when we talk about airlines and it be it be it the legacies or, or or the LCCs where they have a certain scheduled traffic and 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 kind of sales comes through the different channels and, and, and it's more based on that, that individual need for travel. And in the leisure, it's, it's more around that holiday making and, and, and package tours. And so to kind of effect this change, you mentioned the, um, the seats, the premium seats. What are those like? How are those different than, than the seats that uh, have been in the aircraft previously? Over the Atlantic, which is extremely competitive i mean you know frank sinatra said if you're going to make it in new york you can make it anywhere and and, and to a degree uh you can slightly twist this theme by saying that if you want to be you know you know if you want to make it over the atlantic you have to have a competitive product and i think with the new aircraft with the 33900 uh we're really getting to at the very minimum to the same level in regards to the legacy business classes that are out there with the other, with, with our competition uh, I would say that we're at the very minimum at their level. Uh, naturally, as a new product, uh, it's always intriguing and it's a it's a fabulous product. The business class, it's a one-to-one configuration, which I guess is a must for business class travel nowadays. Uh, it is lie flat. Uh, you have the 17 to 24-inch screens on, on board. Um, services is beautiful. So I think, you know, we're very competitive uh, in that business class. We have 64 premium economy seats. Uh, where we also do look at at upselling from from especially economy, and that's more how I see it: upselling from economy rather than downselling from business class. So, so, so looking at at travelers who travel in economy, be it for leisure or business, to to, to upgrade their pitch and 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 the product overall to a degree. So, but I definitely see with the new nine hundreds, we're very competitive with what's out there over the Atlantic, and and uh, that's something I'm, I'm really enthused about. I'm curious to know when we're talking about seat size in economy where us cheapskates would sit. What what are your what, what's the seat pitch and what uh, what kind of width do you have on the seats? I'll have to get down to the details, so 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 I will have to come back to that. But I would say that if if you look at the basic economy product that we, that we offer, um, also very comparable in regards to what's in the market. But um, but in regards to actual. Actual widths and, and, and pitches, I would have to get back, but I, I don't want to take a sure. guess and just say, is it 32-inch pitch or, or so on? But um, I would say very comparable to, to, to what's on the market. Sure. Okay. And what does the root structure look like, uh, especially as far as North America is concerned? So if we look at the year rounds, and, and uh, this year we've been flying year-round Toronto, New York, Seattle, and Los Angeles. So um, so these were we are flying year-round. Uh, and then as we go into the summer, which is the peak season for Condor over the Atlantic, uh, we fly up to 17 cities in North America, and that comes out to, to five cities in Canada and, 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 and 12 in the U.S. So we do strengthen our network over the Atlantic quite a bit as we go into the summer season. And uh, in summer 2023, we're also happy to introduce a completely new route. So we'll be starting out, out flights to, to, to Edmonton. And all of our flights from North America are nonstop into Frankfurt, in, into our hub in, in, in Germany. So uh, it's a strong product that Condor offers during the summer for vacation makers who want to go to, to Germany or, or to Europe, uh, but also to that, to that corporate traveler does have, have an added option uh, with Condor. So as the director of sales, I'm, I'm curious about um, how you uh, affect these kinds of changes. So we've, we've kind of set the stage for 
uh, for what Condor is and what its direction is. So as the director of sales, how do you make the objectives happen? This is a great question, and, and uh, this is something that, that, that I continue to think about. What could I do better, and, and, and how could I impact the market in a stronger way? Uh, you know, naturally about building awareness, we don't have the budgets of, 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 of huge multi-million, you know, you know, companies. So, um, we do have to be creative. We have to use each and every dollar in a, in a, in a wise way that we do market. We have to be quite specific. We have to, to map out who those focus groups are and focus segments are that we need to look for, um, so um, it is a lot of, you know, external meetings. Uh, for me, it's also a lot of internal meetings as I'm, I'm relatively new at Condor still. So I'm still absorbing all the information in regards to Condor ways of working and, and, and you know, basic things in regards to budgets and forecasts and, 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 and seat pitches, as we talked about earlier. But um, in that sense, it, it, a lot of my time at the moment is going about is going into internal as well as external meetings. It's a lot about data crunching. I think you know if if you do want to lead a a, a relatively you know small sales organization, you do have to prioritize and take the right steps, meet the right people. Part of this is also understanding you know what the numbers are saying, and and I believe very much in the numbers, and they do give guidance. But always to numbers, you always do have to add that market knowledge and understand what's behind the numbers. But um, externals meeting our, our, our travel partners, be it, be it travel agencies, be it different associations, be it, be it corporate clients or corporate travelers, and, and just making sure they're aware of, of what the Condor value proposition is, is, is for the next 12 months in regards to network and product. Um, understanding the data and, and uh, just trying to get, trying, trying to get my, fo- my foot uh, between every door that's possible and, and, uh, and, and, and try to make as, as much positive noise in the market as possible. Do you, um, I was thinking of the, the route structure that you mentioned to Max a few minutes ago. Um, in the summertime when the traffic is the busiest, is it more people coming from, from Frankfurt to these states or states to Frankfurt or does it, is it kind of an even split? Yeah, this is a this is a great question, and, and 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 you know it's also an interesting topic for an airline because an airline would always want the passenger mix on on flights to be as balanced as possible, so you don't have, as they would say, have your have your you know eggs in one spot. So so uh, looking at how Condor is 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 set up in regards to our passenger mix, we do see a relatively balanced uh, a demand. So uh, do see it from you know out of Europe. And out of U.S. being pretty fairly, you know, balanced. And there may be, you know, throughout the year, there may be some peaks where you see a bit more travel out of the U.S. or a bit more travel out of, out of Europe or Germany. But overall, we have been relatively happy with how balanced our demand has been over the Atlantic. Well, we all know what happened to demand uh, during the, well, the peak, I guess, of the pandemic. And that uh, it appears that travel is is coming back pretty strongly. Uh, so, uh, Miko, this, I guess the timing is, is right for you to try to make these um, uh, changes to grow the business for Condor and everything. Uh, 12 months ago, 24 months ago, I think it would have been a completely different story. You are so right, Max. And the business has come back. Uh, demand has been strong over the past nine months. Uh, I would even say that the that the winter season has been also uh, relatively strong over the Atlantic, and I've been happy to see that uh, going into the summer. Uh, I think having discussions with multiple 
travel partners in different segments, it seems that that all of our travel partners are confident in regards to the demand that is upcoming this summer. Um, if I do do say one one element that makes makes the whole equation still a bit challenging uh, is the is the demand curve. So 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 the demand and and passengers booking flights, uh, I would still say happens in a relatively short window before the actual departure. So just to make sure that you get your all your different elements from revenue management to sales emphasis to 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 marketing and getting these all in the right window. Um, everything is still happening relatively close to to departure. So talking a couple of months, but uh, it's still a relatively short window. You mentioned that, uh, you know, Condor in terms of booking flights is often works through tour agencies, but uh, can can you book your flights directly on Condor? Is it something that, uh, that people can do so that our, our listeners, if they want to experiment and explore it, uh, can do so? I just looked up your seat pitch, at least on SeatGuru, and it actually looks pretty darn good on the, uh, the wide bodies anyway. It's showing that the business class is a 60-inch pitch with 19 inches wide and premium economy is 36 and the economy is 30 and 30s, you know, not great, but it's not bad. There are others that are worse. So exactly. if people want to fly with you, can they book it on their own or do they have to go through the, uh, a tour operator? Yeah. So, so, uh, when, when we look at specifically travel over the North Atlantic, uh, as, uh, as we are in that, in that scheduled scene and, and, and not in that sense, uh, a more charter or, 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 or leisure scene. Um, and as we are working with all segments, flights can be booked through pretty much any channel. So so flights can be booked through condor.com. Uh, they can book be booked through your local travel agency. So we are in the in the different GDSs, the Sabres, Amadeuses, travel ports and so on. So we are very bookable through pretty much, you know, any any channel. You can, you know, book Condor as a flight only, so only taking your flights into let's say Frankfurt or or beyond. Or then there are also agencies in in North America that do package uh, who can package your 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 entire trip with hotel and, and and other transportation and then add Condor as your as your airline of choice? But uh, we're we're working in in, in basically you could say all channels and 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 trying to position ourselves with a good product overall into all segments that are here in the U.S. or or North America. I want to follow up uh, to uh, Micah's question in your response, but but first, uh, let me just mention that at the beginning, uh, the top of the show, I, I mentioned that you were just, you know recently in this position. You've been in this position for what, like a couple of months? Yeah, you're you're right on. So uh, so first of April, I'll be uh, I'll be two months into my job, and it's not an April Fool's Day, even though it's <laughs> okay. April the first is. <laughs> and I just want to make the point that. Uh, uh, you know, this is something that's, uh, you know, very new to you. So uh, you're very much in the learning mode as anybody is when they start start a new job. But to go back to uh, booking and what Micah was, was asking about, what methods of booking do you uh, do you see most often? I mean, are, are travelers, air travelers, more likely to do their own booking online? themselves or to go through a service? Do you, do you have any information on how that kind of breaks out amongst the different methods for booking flights? I would say that Condor.com is a very strong channel for, for, for passengers booking in, in the North Atlantic. I think the, the pandemic um, also also did, did maybe strengthen uh, airline direct sales to, to consumers. Um, 
but as one of the areas where where we want to develop is 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 repositioning Condor and and, and we do want to be a stronger a stronger option for corporate travelers. Uh, I would say the majority of corporate travel does go through TMCs and, and, and travel agencies that are really tuned toward that corporate market, thinking of the needs the corporate has, be it from duty of care to, to, to everything else that the corporate traveler needs. So, so this is definitely a segment that we want to grow in. And, and, and this is something that we want to grow in together with our TMC partners who are strong in this area. Um, so I would say that our distribution and, and how and how Condor has been purchased by the consumer, um, it has been it has been quite strong in the Condor.com. But going forward, we do want to develop our sales in in some segments that are that are very strong. Then again, in the in the indirect channel, hmm. I imagine that a lot of this depends on developing strong relationships with other travel partners or or even with the traveling public. I recall that uh, when I was uh, when I was working, uh, all the uh, business travel was outsourced. So uh, when I was um, going to visit an airline uh, on a business trip, for example, uh, or an overhaul shop or something like that, I would know where I wanted to end up and when I wanted to be there. But all of the the uh, the, the booking, the travel planning, that was all outsourced to uh, somebody else who was. You know, specializing in the travel for that corporation that I worked with. So, I mean, I guess that that would be the kind of a uh, a relationship that you would need to develop in order to, you know, take advantage of, uh, you know, capturing more of the corporate market. I'm still a very strong believer in in relationships, in, in networks, in, in, in knowing people. I believe that that um, this is one way that you can build awareness of your product in a different way than than doing everything, I guess you could say digitally or or through the different platforms, be it the Zooms or the Teams that are, are available in in today's environment. Especially getting that first contact where you might not be one of the the strongest legacy names uh, in the airline industry. Uh, so I think that that you really need to make an impact and the best impact that you can make toward towards your business partners is through face-to-face meetings through through getting a bit of that personal touch through and at the same time making sure that you have the the right product information that will support that customer and then after that I think it's easier going into different digital modes and and, and having the teams and the, and the zooms but I think it's 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 extremely important that if you haven't been visible uh, in the market and, and with travel agencies and, and, and decision makers, that it's truly important to make that personal contact first that, they, that you can then develop then digitally. On any given week during the, the summer, again, when travel is, is at peak, maybe you could tell listeners the difference between a leisure airline and say, well, I'd say out of Chicago, I, I have a feeling you you serve O'Hare, I think, don't you? In Chicago the is summer? actually Chicago is not part of our network at the moment, even. Right, though. I I knew that. Um, <laughs> okay, never mind. No, but uh, let's say Los Angeles um, is um, is the frequency the same for Condor as it would be for say Lufthansa out of uh, Los Angeles to to Frankfurt. So this summer uh, we are flying daily. Uh, so, so, so we have New York, we have Seattle, we have LA, we have San Francisco, uh, going as daily operations during the very peak. 
Um, outside, if you, if you look at the shoulder seasons, uh, we will be in that five-ish range. Uh, but during the you know the very peak of, of of summer demand, we will be flying, we will be flying daily. So in that sense, uh, we are we are in the same game as Lufthansa when we are doing or, or going daily. Uh, when we're in the shoulders, we might be slightly less in, in, in regards to what Lufthansa is doing, but still offering a strong option in regards to getting to, to, to Frankfurt, Germany, or, or all of Europe. You know, um, I may live in Portland, Maine, but it's crazy. I listen to public radio out of KUOW Seattle, and uh, and that's what I, I've been listening to for years. And I remember when Condor first came into Seattle because you were underwriting and doing sponsorships on KUOW, a public radio station. And I thought that was brilliant because that's a market, that's a group of people with, with certain income levels and everything that might not be paying attention to ads on television or other radio stations, but do pay attention to who's underwriting the shows that they're listening to. And, and I, I just thought that was a brilliant marketing plan. And here I am in, in Portland saying, well, I can't fly Condor, but, but, <laughs> but, 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 I, but I'm listening to it and, and just thought that was a, a brilliant way to, to market a, a new airline. But Micah, I, I do have to say that this summer we are coming to Portland also. So, uh, so, so we'll be offering nonstop flights from Portland into, into Frankfurt as well as going into Seattle. It's the other Portland. That's Portland, Oregon. Ah, okay. I'm in Portland, sorry. Maine. Oh, it's okay. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about that. All right, You're just I'll, teasing me. That's all. I'll have, to, I'll have to go to my network department and, and talk about Portland, Maine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I can yeah. hook you up with the airport director. <laughs> so why don't you come to Chicago? I mean, have you all, have you already done the market research that says there just wouldn't be enough business, or wh- how do you decide that? Well, I think right now that that um, the network that we have planned for the next twelve months or so, I th- I think we're pretty pretty tight to to uh, to fly that. So so looking at growth, I think we would need to also look at increasing our fleet count and and, and having more more wide bodies to operate. The network that we have planned out now with the 17, uh, 17 routes over the summer works really well with Condor and, and, and one that we're, um, I guess you could even say, accustomed to to a degree. Um, Chicago is a, is, a, is a fantastic city, having been there and, and flowed through there uh, for quite a while. Um, I think Chicago is, is, is something that not knowing what the future holds in store, uh, uh, you never know. Um, Again, huge opportunity in Chicago. Just looking at maybe also the dynamics of Chicago overall. Uh, many of the carriers that do fly into Chicago also have strong cooperation with with airlines for feed beyond Chicago or or, or behind Chicago, depending which way you look at it. Um, Condor is an independent airline in the sense that we're not part of of, a, of an alliance or a joint business. We do have strong cooperation with Alaska as well as with JetBlue in the U.S. and and, and WestJet in in Canada. So we do have strong partners. But um, if you do look at many of the airlines that fly into Chicago, they do have the strong feeder uh, behind Chicago where you see a lot of the traffic uh, also going to, to further destinations out of Chicago. So that might be one that may play behind the scenes, but just looking at Overall, at the market and looking at the airlines that do operate into Chicago over the Atlantic, you do see a lot of that that capability with those having that that very strong feeder and defeeder travel uh, or or feeder and defeeder flights. Route planning is enormously complex. I mean, there's a lot of uh, factors that 
go into that. Obviously, is Miko, is that something that takes place back at the the home office? You probably don't do route planning regionally, do you? Yeah, correct. So, so, so it's a very centralized function. In I would say, in many airlines that I do know, that headquarters usually is what takes, uh, you know, route planning and be short term or or long term planning. Um, I guess you know my my job is to make sure that I'm able to bring the feedback from the North American market to our route planning folk and make sure that they're aware of maybe opportunities that I see. Uh, in the North American market, that Condor should should think about it, be be Chicago or be it another city here in here here in North America. But but um but the final decisions are then made by the by by the network or or route development team, and uh, my main task in that is 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 giving the feedback. Sure, that's that's what I would expect to be the case. Yeah, absolutely. So so then there's no hope that we might get a a special feed uh, <laughs> during September. Uh, to get us to Frankfurt and then on to Nuremberg for the uh, Oktoberfest. Huh? <laughs> I would love to say yes to that, but unfortunately, I think yeah. our network is pretty is pretty uh, is pretty well finalized for for, for oh, September. Well. All right, you, you can't. <laughs> but you know, I could get sure. down to JFK to fly out. I could certainly. It's not that far. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> hey, welcome on board. I hope to see you on board for the Oktoberfest. Yeah, yeah. Did you have something, Micah? Well, I, I was going to ask, um, you know, you, I know you have that partnership with JetBlue and, you know, JetBlue is a changing airline and they are starting to now offer their own transatlantic service from both JFK and from Boston. And uh, when I looked up flying from Boston on Condor the other night, I saw that uh, that I would be going J, uh, JetBlue to JFK and then picking up a Condor flight. Is that relationship changing or what, how, does, how do those relationships evolve, I guess, is what the question is, as airlines change? Overall, if I look at our cooperation with JetBlue, uh, it's an important one for us. Uh, it brings us feed into gateways that we have in the similar way that Alaska Air uh, or, or Alaskan gives us, you know, feed into in, into Condor gateways, and it makes our our product stronger. This is how, from the Condor point of view, I, I see the cooperation with with all of the airline partners that we have, be it here in North America or or, or in Europe. Uh, Miko, you had a lot of experience at um, Finnair before coming to this. Uh to this position. Is there a relationship between Finnair and Condor or was this a, was this a, a clean jump for you? No, this was a, a clean jump and, and uh, you know, luckily coming into Condor and, and even though I am facing a lot of, you know, new topics and, and, and the market dynamics are slightly different than they were at Finnair, um, I also do see that the 23 years of experience that I've had with Finnair, uh, it has also in that sense given me Given me the readiness to, to to be in this position and 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 truly you know that transition in regards to the to the business critical topics has been quite easy and and or easy nothing's easy in today's world but but uh, it has allowed me to have you know you know opinions from day one and views from day one and 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 my own view on what the direction Condor needs to do when we look at the at the positioning of Condor in the U.S. market so that experience has definitely helped in 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 uh, this position. And, uh, you know, I will always have that love, you know, towards Finnair, but the situation that was an, at hand, it was like a jigsaw puzzle where all the puzzles just, you know, they, they fit in perfectly where, where Condor changing the brand identity, you know, completely renewing its fleet, long haul and wide bodies, you know, over the next 12 months or so, and all the narrow bodies in 2024. So starting that process there. So coming out 
pretty much over the next two years or so with a completely new fleet in the market, with the new identity, with with this kind of uh, opportunity to really, you know, get into new segments in, in, in North America. And, and I don't want to say start from, from, from scratch as Condor has had teams here in the U.S., but especially after COVID and, and having a very light presence in the U.S., um, it is really, you know, energizing and fun and exciting to kind of, you know, be creating and building relationships and, and, and searching for new business and really trying to make it, make it visible in the numbers. So, uh, I hope this gives, you know, some, some, some thoughts to how I'm feeling as I'm, I'm, I'm truly excited in this position. Did you have to make any kind of cultural adjustment in the move? Uh, I think, you know, that every company does have its own, own culture. I think every country to a degree has its own culture. Uh, I've been fortunate throughout my career and, and life that I've, I've had the opportunity to live in the UK and London and, and, and New York and also in Germany and, 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 and Finland. So living in different places, you know, I've learned to adapt quickly and, and, uh, in that sense, I haven't I haven't had any any challenges. I've had I've had a super warm welcome at Condor. I've had a super warm welcome with uh, with the travel trade here in North America. So um, I guess I've been extremely lucky or fortunate in in that sense that that uh, that I've had a really good start. So uh, so so on that side also, it's just brought a big a wide smile to my face. That's wonderful. Did, did you? Um... Uh, was your has your entire career been in in aviation? Yeah, I would say ninety nine percent. Coming out of university, I did did a uh, I did do a quick quick stint or in in mobile phones and and and, and the tele tele operator uh, industry, but uh, that wasn't for me. And then after that, I I, I did jump into Finnair, and ever since then, I've been in the aviation and 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 done passenger sales, done cargo, done, done revenue management. So I've been also in that sense fortunate to be able to touch many different areas that an airline operates in, and uh, I wouldn't change a day of it. Yeah. Once you're in aviation, pretty much almost nobody leaves. I agree. Because it's, yeah, it's so exciting and dynamic, and, you know, there's always, always things going on, uh, oftentimes great things. For example, what you're what you're doing now. Sometimes things that aren't so great, and you can't wait for them to, you know, to change or or be over. But it's always exciting. It's a very dynamic kind of uh, kind of business, and um, I think it's also it's it's a close knit group in many ways. Um, I mean, there are a, a lot of different types of aviation careers. There are a, a lot of um, you know different people involved in aviation, but still. Uh, you, you tend to make connections, uh, build a network, and that sort of uh, serves you throughout your career. Yeah, it's very, it's very true. Uh, be it in, the, in in airlines or travel agencies, you know, you, it's it, it's funny how global and widely spread the industry is. But uh, usually, if you even meet someone that you don't know, you will always find a, a mutual person that that both of us would know so in that sense it's a it's a uh kind of funny in that sense that you always find someone that that you and the person that you're talking with know yes is there a destination that you just wish you could get condor to serve (laughs) i mean like a like a just a wish and a dream or something i don't antarctica or something i don't know but to something i think yeah 
I think that's one that I would have to sleep on, but uh, but I'm actually still fascinated, you know, on some of the destinations and and, and places that Condor flies even right now, the the Maldives and the Seychelles and the South Africas and the Caribbeans and the, I just I just find these all my top destinations. That that I'm I'm a summer person, even though I'm a I'm I'm a born Finn who's who should be used to the winters, but I'm a summer person and and. Uh, all of those destinations I just mentioned are, are are definitely top of the list. So I think I think I'm gonna have to sleep on that one. Yeah, I understand the Seychelles are just really spectacular. Yeah, I have never been, so 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 my career at Condor is still too short. But um, I do hope to you know to have the day when I'm also able to to, to experience on my own the uh, the Seychelles or the Maldives or even the Caribbean. Yes. All right. Well, very good, Miko. Uh, people that want to learn more about Condor. Probably the best place to go is to the Condor website. Correct. Which is uh, condor.com. Yes. If I remember correctly. Thank you, Max. Yes, condor.com. Yeah, very good. Well, we uh, we wish you great success, uh, well, both personally in your, you know, your new journey here, but also to Condor broadly in, in terms of uh, be, you know, being successful in the market and expanding and providing great value to, to customers. Look forward. I think we have a... Um, a video that we'll we'll put a link to it in the show notes that uh, shows the the new prime seat in the A330 Neos. So people that uh, want to take a look at what we've been talking about can do that. Probably there's also uh, some information about the seat in the uh, on the website, um, but we'll have that video in the show notes. Thank you, Max. And it looks just great, and I really think people should be flying those candy striped airplanes. I know, I know. We'll put a picture. Uh, I'm sure we can come up with a, an image to uh, to put into the show notes to to show this because yeah, as we were talking before, Mike, we both agree it's very striking. You're not going to miss it. Um, it's going to stand out at the airport for sure. If you're a plane spotter, there will be no doubt in your mind. Yes, for clearly, <laughs> clearly. All right, Miko, thank you again. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Hey, thanks. On to some of the aviation news from the past week. Uh, boy, this was a big uh, item, I think, Rob. The uh, the FAA held its Aviation Safety Summit. That was in McLean, Virginia. Apparently more than uh, 200 aviation industry safety leaders met. They talked about ways to enhance flight safety. There were different sessions uh, focused on, I guess, four different categories. Commercial operations, the air traffic system, airport and ground operations, and general aviation operations. So uh, what kind of feedback are you hearing, Rob, as, in terms of uh, what, what was discussed or what got accomplished or what the next steps are even? Well, the FAA's acting administrator, uh, Billy Nolan, uh, called for this. And, of course, it is a uh, – uh, there's no good way to say it, except it's a reaction to what has been transpiring in the aviation industry uh, with close calls and and uh, you know booking messes and and what have you uh, over the last few months, they, they had a uh, an hour and a half sort of a general session where uh, people from all walks of uh, aviation life, uh, the controllers union, the pilots union, uh, a number of aviation uh, associations, uh, all kind of made their their pitch for. You know, we have a great system, but uh, we, we're going to lose it if we don't 
pay attention to what's going on. And I think it was universal that everybody said, we're not sure what we might be missing. Uh, maybe there are lights flashing out there that we're just not aware of. And, and we need all these people to kind of come together and, and see if we can uh, uh, focus on that. And uh, after the ge- general section, uh, they uh, separated into these breakout groups focused on the on the topics you did. And uh, each came away. I mean, the media couldn't be involved in the breakout groups. So we only know what FAA and some of the people that were in the groups uh, have, have said. But they, they tried to come up with some some fresh thinking. Uh, it uh, Of course, it, it lasted just that one day, and I think we're going to see what happens after that. I mean, on the, on the commercial side, of course, uh, we were looking at uh, better ways to share safety information, data that is already out there. Um, they want to get the, uh, uh, the cast team together. I mean, the, the cast team, the commercial aviation safety team has been around since, oh my gosh, 95, 96, something like that. But they're the ones that years ago said, we think back uh, almost 30 years and, and airline accidents were rather frequent uh, and, and fatal airline accidents were rather frequent for a number of kind of sometimes silly reasons. Uh, pilots would forget to set the flaps or, uh, you know, they, they didn't have takeoff power set or uh, airplanes were overloaded on the ground. Uh, uh, the weather was bad and they flew into, I mean, all kinds of things today that we say, well, they don't really do that anymore. And and so the cast team came up with a goal of reducing uh, airline industry accidents, and and they did over the course of about, uh, I think it took about twelve years for the numbers to really start to drop. Uh, but they went uh, fatal accidents were uh, reduced by eight, almost eighty five percent, which is an s- unbelievable number. And uh, today. We kind of take that for granted. We haven't had a, a commercial aviation fatality in 12, 14 years, I think, something like that. In the USA. you got to make in the sure, USA. Yeah, need to, make sure to point that out. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Uh, my memory's not what it used to be. You know, I mean, uh, that's why I brought my, my cousin Micah along. Um, but uh, <laughs> they, uh, they also focused on uh, the Asias system, which is a, a really cool uh, aviation safety and uh, data analysis site that um, uh, the FAA has had for many many years, and uh, you can well I won't I won't belabor the point, but just say that's also another way they're looking at it is can we use that data in a new way? Um, but something that uh, when when they spoke to the air traffic system, they looked at um, how do we how do we eliminate uh, runway incursions where a truck or another airplane or something that's not supposed to be on the runway ends up on the runway while an aircraft is uh, landing or uh, departing. Uh, but the, the people may have heard the term ASDX, which was the uh, uh, radar in the tower at uh, 35 airports, I believe, that looks at ground movements. And it can see... Uh, not only the aircraft taxiing on the ground, thanks to ADSB uh, that came online uh, a couple of years ago, um, 
but also uh, it can see it can see vehicles because vehicles have transponders in them now. It can see uh, aircraft taxiing wherever they are taking off, and it it was what saved the uh, the day at JFK because the SDX said, eh, 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 you know, as this guy crossed one of the runways in front of a departure, and and the guy yelled for the guy to to abort the takeoff. Uh, but what was interesting, uh, during the uh, session, uh, Rich Santa, the president of the uh, National Air Traffic Controllers Association, spoke about SDX, and he made a very important point that almost nobody covered, uh, which was the fact that SDX is there at these 35 airports, but that the FAA really doesn't have the parts to fix SDX units when they break. What? Because the technology is so old. Oh. And um, I I did not know this. I thought, holy smokes, they're depending on this thing. And they haven't come up with a, uh, uh, you know, a, a next-gen uh, solution. Hmm. So, um, and again, nobody talked about that. But I thought that's going to be something that is really important one of these days. Because, again, let's be serious. We have spoken about the close calls, and when the number of close calls continues to happen, you're kind of logically focused on, so when's it not going to be a close call? You know, when's it going to be uh, like a bad situation? Uh, and, And now recently, the last couple of weeks, things seem to have slowed down a little bit. Um, but will we see a spike again? Maybe. And we don't know when that spike is going to be. Uh, but uh, uh, these people are, again, they, they threw their uh, ideas into the kitty. And uh, right now the FAA has not announced when the, uh, uh, when the groups, if and when the groups will meet again and what the next steps are. I also saw that um, there was some talk about incorporating human factors into risk models, which I thought was oh, kind sure. of interesting. Yeah. yeah, and that that I guess that came about from pilots and flight attendants who were concerned about the levels of stress that they uh, that they're facing. And and uh, well, seventy five percent of of accidents in the commercial industry uh, business have uh, are based on some human doing something or not doing something that they're supposed to do. So it's not simply a, a failure of technology or anything like that, although those could uh, easily accompany the, the issue. But you're right, late nights, long hours, air traffic controllers, I mean, here in Chicago at the Chicago Tracon are still working six-day weeks, um, and that, that can wear on you. Well, and when you look back at, at, at the last big accident that we had here in the USA, which was back in 2009, the Colgan Air uh, 3407, that was all a human factor crash. And when uh, Congress went to change the rules to make sure that didn't happen again, they didn't change anything that had anything to do with the human factors. They added the 1,500-hour rule. But who's to say that that had anything to do with it? It probably didn't. They didn't change anything to do with rest periods, really. Uh, they didn't change anything to do with being able to commute from one air, one side of the country to the other for your for your job, for your base. They, they didn't make any of the important changes. And for some 
perhaps legitimate reasons based on, you know, what the unions wanted and, 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 and what the, the actual, you know, pilots wanted. But, but, but those human factors have not been taken into account. No, and, and that's a really good point. Uh, the, um, oh, wait, I'm sorry, my brain just just died on me here. Wait, let me refrag my hard drive here. Yeah. Uh, but I was going to say it's the same thing with, with the ATC. I mean, you probably remember the Rattler shift that you used to work, you know? It's crazy. Well, and, and I think that the, uh, uh, the factors that came from, uh, I'm sorry, the result of 3407 was a huge political outcry. Uh, the, the families of that Continental uh, Express flight, uh, they marched on Congress. They went to Washington and said, you know, we've had enough of this. Uh, those pilots should have been better qualified and what have you. And they made quite a bit of noise with their uh, congressional uh, representatives. And so they, that's how we ended up with what's known as the 1500-hour rule that said that commercial pilots must hold an airline transport pilot certificate, whereas prior to that, they could come out of a uh, university setting or some other training program and have five, six hundred hours uh, and still get hired into the right seat. No longer. And so there are people that said, this is crazy because no one ever proved that having 1,500 hours had anything or could possibly have affected 3407. In fact, both of those pilots had way more than 1,500 hours. So what was the point? Ooh, but however, I can tell you that is such uh, a third rail uh, of, of political issues in the aviation industry. Nobody wants to touch it. Yeah. Either way. Death. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we'll have some, actually some uh, more detailed information about some of the uh, discussions that were held uh, in the show notes for this episode, uh, including a lot of links. So Rob mentioned the Commercial Aviation Safety Team cast, well, links to that, the Aviation Information Analysis and Sharing System, uh, lots of uh, resources on these topics. And we also see that there are a couple of events coming up. The, um, the FAA is going to host a workshop on March 30th, dealing with uh, implementing safety management systems at uh, at the airports. That's something that we've talked about in the past. That's March 30th. Um, on uh, March 22nd, which will have already happened probably by the time you're listening to this, but the FAA is going to broadcast its annual From the Flight Deck live virtual event for pilots. And I guess, is that um, sort of GA-focused Rob, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. Um, they're good videos. I mean, they really are. And they, they try to create awareness of, uh, again, the topics that uh, too many GA pilots kind of take for granted. And so uh, topics for that, um, for that event, uh, that broadcast, include pre-flight planning, wrong surface risk and human factors, which is runway safety, airport signs, markings, and lighting. And so uh, we'll have a, some information about that in the show notes also. All right, moving on, I think everybody by now is probably aware of the two Russian fighter jets uh, that were harassing a U.S. MQ-9 Reaper drone. David, these were uh, Russian Su-25 
27 jets. Those are, are those uh, pretty um, top of the line jets? Uh, the flankers they were flying um, were not the top of the line flankers, but but the flanker is the top of the line jet fighter for the Russian Air Force right now. There are that it is their front, it is their primary frontline fighter. And this technique of dumping fuel on the drone—that's something that I've never encountered before. Is that is that is that a common technique, or was was somebody being creative here? Harassing vehicles from of your opponent has been a long-standing tradition. Um, the P three squadrons that used to fly out of Willow Grove used to um, fill their bomb bays with trash and overfly Soviet subs off the off the coast of the United States and um, bomb them with trash. And <laughs> these kind of things have gone – these things have gone on for years. Now, the MQ-9 was flying over international waters over the Black Sea. The Russians, since annexing Crimea, have said that that area is now part of Russia – and and so they were intercepting the um, MQ-9, which is um, a Reaper. Uh, now, this interception went really wrong really quickly. Proper interception techniques, um, anyone who who's either been intercepted or knows about the procedure, is you basically line up parallel to the aircraft – at the same altitude and same height and slowly come up and approach the aircraft. You're not supposed to get up close and personal to it. You're not supposed to be dumping fuel on it. If you want to watch a or see a perfect interception of an aircraft, find a picture of a TU-95 Bear and pick an aircraft from either the mid-50s up through the F-22 Raptor and F-35s and you will see an Air Force aircraft flying parallel at the same altitude with a substantial subs- substantial separation between the two aircraft. You are visible enough to um, see each other, the pilots and stuff, so everybody knows what's going on. Um, no, it is not Top Gun. You do not go inverted and pull your nose down yeah. and um, – look into the other cockpit and exchange diplomatic relations. Um, I heard a very significant a- analysis of the incident and the dumping fuel was a harassment thing. The coming up to the aircraft from behind, clearly the uh, Russian pilot misjudged the the approach and um it was not an intentional two because no no real pilot wants to fly their aircraft into another aircraft. Um, they got too close. They misjudged it, and it was really poor airmanship that caused the incident to occur. Um, Chinese and Russian pilots have done very, as well as North Korean pilots, have done very um, erratic um, intercepts, and this is becoming more and more common over the last couple of years, um, where they're not flying professional and they're flying more by the seat of their pants. So 
there are procedures. I mean, and it's been done this way for years because what we don't want is to avoid what we don't want is to have an international incident. This was a manned aircraft and this happened. This would be a very big deal. Like what happened with the P3 that had the land in China that we, um, that we almost lost crew from because of that situation. Um, Nobody wants to go to war over a really poor interception. I mean, militaries do this all the time. It's unfortunate that in this case, um, it was poor, poor airmanship. Um, Who is authorizing these pilots to be able to do this? Um, I don't know if... If that pilot was a U.S. pilot, I guarantee you that by the time they hit the ground, they would be hauled their butt to a base commander and basically grounded ASAP. So I think the Russians, their initial concept of, of the aircraft being not intentionally hit or wasn't hit at all was clearly the video on... The nice thing about the MQ-9 is that has a nice big camera ball turret on the bottom of it that can see 360 degrees. So it could see the aircraft from behind, and that's how they videotaped it, clipping the propeller. Um, The other part about it was the aircraft wasn't damaged enough not to have time for the aircraft to be completely wiped of all of its information and prepped and Basically, um, it is my understanding that the aircraft was, at that point, eventually um, flown deliberately into the water so it would break into 100 parts so there would not be recoverable. Um, so the Air, the Air Force did everything in its power not to have what the Chinese had, which is when we shot down the balloon over where we had all of that wreckage that we could recover. So... Um, the drones are now set up to be able to be wiped the memory before because and what they can recover they can get from just about any public book on the on the reaper etc but the 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 data that was really what the russians would want um would be um would be wiped clean and we the next day sent another reaper down the same pattern to prove that you know that we international water, waters international law says that we can fly aircraft there um you're welcome to come up and look at us and check us out but running an aircraft into another aircraft is never safe and could be catastrophic and the consequences are really high in a game like this well and and the the uh, uh Reaper was not that they would use it, but the Reaper was armed, was it not? I'm not sure that they are flying armed Reapers in. Uh, normally, the Reaper is equipped with Hellfire missiles, which is an air to ground missile. Oh, the Reaper does not carry, while it is capable of carrying a Sidewinder, um, it does not normally carry a self-defense weapon like like a sidewinder where um because bottom line is there isn't any reason to defend a drone you the only thing that's on the drone would be the data i mean it's supposed to be in a and we're i'm going to use my our favorite word max attritable um so it 
basically you're not going to put defensive armament on on a drone because if it gets shot down it gets shot down it's a drone it's you lost money but and you lost some data but you didn't lose a pilot which is why you would have a air defense product on it but then how do you harass a machine an aircraft that doesn't have a pilot in it are you irritating the guys on the ground at Nellis or or wherever they're flying them from or yeah you're, 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 you, you, yes. Um, you were trying to make your presence aware and, and hopefully that will direct the aircraft to take evasive action, to move it away from whatever it was checking out, which of course the Russians know that if we are getting information about their movements in Crimea, we are feeding them to the Ukrainians, um, so, I mean, yes, it's in their best interest not to have a drone flying over that airspace. So they should have the right to try to influence the Air Force aircraft to move away from it. But that being said, this was not the way to do it. If uh, if you want to hear more about the way an intercept is supposed to run, if you go back to uh, episode 430, we had uh, Captain Nick Anderson on as our guest, and he talks about a little bit about uh, when he was flying in the RAF and he would intercept bear bombers on with his F-4s. And then also uh, he did a much longer detailed uh, podcast about that uh, on the Cold War Conversation podcast, which is a really fun podcast. And in episode 44, he talks about intercepts completely for about, oh, about 45 minutes, which is which pretty fascinating. Well, one last question. How large is the Reaper? I mean, I, I don't have any uh, feel Large for enough that. for you to fear it. Um, I'm sorry. But bad. <laughs> bad um, yeah. I get scared pretty easily. So, Isn't it like about an 80-foot wingspan? Yeah, like it's, it's, uh. it's like the size of a small uh, biz jet. I mean, sure. it, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, Got a very long wing, high aspect ratio wing. Um, it does have, I mean, has the pusher prop um, and the and a very thin and narrow fuselage. It's kind of an odd shape, um, very spindly landing gear because um, it's supposed to be lightweight for the long endurance part. So, but yeah, it's it is a bigger aircraft than you expect. But that being said, I um, mean. I mean, it, it is, it, it's an aircraft. I mean, yes, you can pack it up and put it in a box and sip it on a C-130 to somewhere. But that being said, it, it is um, an a aircraft and a sizable one. Um, it's got a 66-foot wingspan. Maximum payload, 3,800 pounds. All right. Let's see. What's up next? What's up next is, ah, this is a completely different uh, to- topic. Cockpit voice recorders. So currently in the United States, I guess new cockpit voice recorders um, have a recording time of two hours. But the FAA is saying that they would like to see 25-hour cockpit voice recorders, which, Rob, kind of makes sense to me, especially in light of some of the current events. Well, and that is exactly why there's a push on for this. However, let me just make one important uh, statement here that the it's not this is not because the FAA wanted this. Uh, the National Transportation Safety Board suggested this five, six years ago, and FAA said, "Yeah, okay, we'll get back to you on that." 
and it's only because uh, the uh, of the safety summit uh, the week uh, you know a week ago that this is really coming to light. In fact, the uh, the NTSB chairman was interviewed on CNN uh, last. I don't know if it was Thursday or Friday of last week, and she specifically mentioned this. And lo and behold, suddenly the FAA said, we've got to make that 25 hours, and we're going to put that into effect, which it it does make sense because so much of the data from the the JFK accident, uh, incident and uh, uh, a number of others, the one in uh, uh, Southern California, down in Dallas, I'm sorry, at uh, in Austin, uh, if we could have heard what the crew was saying to each other before those events and after, it would go a long way to helping the NTSB uh, figure out what the problem was. Were they distracted by something else? Were they just shooting the breeze? Uh, who knows? But of course, all that information is overridden because it re-records every two hours. And uh, suddenly they said, safety summit, you know what? Information sources, we need to get those cockpit voice recorders fixed. Well, you know, there was there was reason why it was only two hours at the beginning, because, you know, it used to be tape, and you could only go so much with tape, because you were re-recording Excellent over point. it. But now it's digital, and it's much easier to do, so there's no reason why, you know, it can't be done, and they can't add to it. Digital storage is very, very inexpensive. But I'm also sure that, and we talked a little bit about this in Isaac's chat on the Sunday night, uh, you know, there, there were union issues about this as well. I'm sure the unions didn't necessarily want this, but I'm sure the union said, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. 25-hour cockpit voice recorder, because we're already having our voices recorded. This keeps the cameras out of the cockpit, which will be the next thing, I'm sure. It, exactly. And that was the, uh, what, what do you call it, the nose, the camel's nose under the tent, uh, that if we have increased CVR uh, capacity, the next thing they're going to want video cameras. And ALPA and the other unions have all been uh, they've always been very much against that. Um, the wise, well, we would probably have to have somebody from ALPA or uh, uh, the Allied Pilots Association on to uh, to tell us why that worries them so much. But anyway, that that is indeed why it uh, another reason why it didn't get done. But now it has, and thank God it wasn't an accident that caused FAA to finally hmm. uh, say, okay, we're going to do this. Well, there's a reason why they don't want cameras in the cockpit, and that actually leads us to another story that is further down our list, but I think we should jump to it, and that is the two Indian pilots that got suspended because of a photo that leaked out of something that took place in the cockpit. And I suspect that little things take place in the cockpit, certainly nothing quite as egregious as this, but that's a pretty interesting story. And and if you've ever read the book or saw the movie Fate is the Hunter uh, back Black and white in, when did that come out? In the late 60s, I think, or something about. But anyway, an airplane crashed because the captain put a, a cup of uh, hot coffee near the throttles and it spilled and it shorted, uh, shorted everything out. But it, I, I think that's bad enough. But the fact that somehow this, this shot ended up on social media, okay. That's really dumb. So how did it get out of the cockpit and into uh, did did uh, 
it looked like somebody took a picture. I mean, that's pretty stupid. Uh, But again, I mean... These were two spice jet pilots. And they, uh, right, they placed this cup right on the the controls. And dunking their samosas into the coffee right over the controls that they have the cup balanced on. Just crazy. Spice jet issued a statement, which is... Kind of interesting. They said SpiceJet has a strict policy for consumption of food inside the cockpit, which is adhered to by all flight crew. Well, apparently not. <laughs> said appropriate disciplinary action will be taken upon completion of the investigation. Kind of like what David said about the uh, the uh, drone uh, being knocked down. If it was done by a U.S. pilot, they'd have some serious explaining to do uh, when they got on the ground. Yeah, and. Um, so this uh, this pair got caught. Hey, one more thing on uh, on the cockpit voice recorder. I just wanted to mention, just so people are aware, is that if you go to a twenty five hour CVR, that doesn't mean something new has to be invented. They already have twenty five hour cockpit voice recorders. In fact, they've been used in in Europe, I guess, for a year. But L three Harris, who probably makes most, if not almost all of the cockpit voice recorders and the flight data recorders. Um, but you, you can just go right to their website and uh, they sell the the Survivor 25, uh, which is S-R-V-I-V-R. So I guess that's Survivor 25. It's a series of 25-hour cockpit voice and data recorders ready to buy. So this is, again, this is not require something to be created that doesn't exist already. So so the FAA says that they're going to uh, establish an ARC, an Aviation Rulemaking Committee, to explore this and uh, initiate the rulemaking to go to a 25-hour recorder. All right, another safety. Boy, we've got a lot of safety issues here. Um, another one from PaddleYourOwnCanoe.com. Flight attendants are again pushing for a lap infant ban on U.S. airlines. So this is the issue of buying one ticket, you and your infant, holding your infant on your lap, which I, I really never thought was a very good idea. Oh, no, no. I, I mean, years ago, and even when I was still flying actively, I mean, we would, we would see people carrying little babies, and either the pilots or the flight attendants would go in the back and say, oh, yeah, and we would try to give them the spiel about you know, maybe next time you might want to think about a seat uh, uh, for the baby because it's really hard to hold on to them uh, if we hit some really tough turbulence. And, of course, people would always say, well, yeah, but if I had to pay for a seat for Junior uh, or Doris, uh, we, we couldn't take the trip. Well, guess what? Then you don't take the trip because what is your child worth? Uh, is your child not worth uh, 500 bucks uh, to you. Oh, of course, but, but they don't want to buy yeah. a seat. And, and the other thing is that yeah, I'd be really ticked off if someone's infant became a projectile in, a, in some turbulence and injured me. I never thought of it. <laughs> On the Lufthansa flight that uh, diverted into D.C. just a few weeks ago uh, because of turbulence, there was a lap baby, and the lap baby was picked up in the air, you know, the mother couldn't quite hold on to it. And fortunately, it wasn't injured, but it could have been. And yeah, the baby becomes a projectile and can hurt the baby and and hurt the child. But you know what fascinates me about this? I mean, when I was a kid, and this is part of my excuse, you know, my 
when I would travel in the car, you know, my mom would hold me in the front seat of the big Plymouth. And that was the way that it was. And I, I remember that. That's not allowed anymore. That's against the law. That same child cannot be in the car being held by the mother's arms. It must be in a car seat made for the child, but not in an airplane. It doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. No, and you know what's really funny is I can remember the first uh, time we took my daughter for a trip out to, well, this is 28 years ago. Uh, she was an infant, and uh, uh, we, we bought her a seat. I said, I ain't going to have none of my friends seeing me getting on an airliner with, you know, holding my daughter on a, on a lap. Because, I, again, I was always worried that she might get hurt. So we brought the car seat on board, and uh, and the flight attendant said, you you can't put that car seat on a on an airline seat. It's not it's not certified. And I said, what? <laughs> I bought this girl a ticket. And I said, you think I'm going to put a six-month-old under a seatbelt? I said, come on, you know, and I never in my wildest dreams thought it would become an issue, uh, but it kind of almost did. And then somebody from the cockpit came back and I said, look, come on, this is, you know, I tried to keep my voice down. I was trying to be very calm, but I would have walked off the damn airplane if they told me I couldn't use the seat. And after a while I went, oh, well, okay, but it, it was easy. You just clicked it in, and and she slept the whole way anyway to California. But, I mean, it's insane. What Mike had just said is so insane in today's world that if if a cop caught you at a stop sign with a mother in the right seat holding a little infant on her lap, they would pull you over. I don't know what the fine would be, but it would be significant, I bet. But on an airplane, we go, eh, it's all right. Yeah. So, Rob, you mentioned uh, in the other story about the uh, how the NTSB had made you know the recommendation in the past, and I mean, as we know, NTSB makes recommendations as a result of their investigations. But as we know, they are uh, um, they don't have any enforcement power, or there's no uh, you know mandate. Somebody else, the FAA, or somebody has to uh, take action, and oftentimes. Well, I don't know about often, but at least sometimes the recommendations are not implemented. And in fact, um, on this topic with the uh, lap infants, there was a um, a crash in um, 1989, uh, United Flight uh, 232. Uh, Eleven passengers and crew were killed, including a young infant. Uh, and aren't most infants young? Huh. All infants most are infants young. young? Oh, I just—it's redundant, huh? Just trying to clarify. Okay. So Sarah Nelson, the president of the yeah. Association of Flight Attendants, who was on the show, I want to say okay. about okay, Micah. Years what ago. episode was she? Uh, Five hundred and forty-five, yeah. actually. Yeah. In I fact, she was one of the ones at the uh, uh, safety summit this last week. Oh, was she? Good, yeah. good. Well, on that, referring to that United flight, she said, and the, their current call for a ban on lap infants. She said, sadly, this has been more than a 30-year priority for our union. We must have children safe on the plane and in their own seats with a proper restraint device to make sure it never happens again. And to the NTSB point I was going to make is that after that crash, the NTSB added that as a recommendation, a seat for every soul, as they 
put it, that was in their annual list of most wanted safety improvements. You know, the NTSB puts that out. But interestingly, and I don't know why that recommendation was dropped in 2006. So uh, as you mentioned, Rob, this has been around a long time. Airlines wanted to sell more seats. They were afraid that if they demanded uh, that, that Junior have his own seat, that mom and dad wouldn't go and that he'd lose all of them. And they thought, well, we'll just go along with this for now. And but it's it's never, it's it's just never come up for a for a vote. I mean, it's not like FAA said last week. Oh, and by the way, we're also going to include making certain there's a soul for every a seat for every soul. Uh, and but you know the flight attendants have always been uh, pushing this harder because they're they're the first line of customer service in in the cabin. Uh, I mean, they're there for safety reasons, believe it or not, not to serve you drinks or, well, of course, nobody serves food on board anymore, but much to the flight attendant's love because you know what else has gone away? People getting sick in the cabin because there's no food in the back. But I'm sorry. No, I think this is, it's just amazing. The the quote that, uh, that, that Sarah Nelson, or when, what she explained, she when talking about that Sioux City crash. She said that the pr- protocol, and I'm sure it still is, is how the flight attendants told parents to wrap their unbuckled babies in blankets and place them on the floor. I mean, can you imagine that that's the safety briefing that flight attendants have been given to give to passengers in the event of an emergency? And can you imagine the the mother or father being told to do this? It it makes no sense. Yeah, most wouldn't. Well, and and I've seen the, I don't know if we had that in the show notes, um, the uh, recreation of uh, some of the safety uh, uh, data from anyway hmm. but uh, what what people also became just as concerned about or perhaps more was that if you're holding your infant on your lap and uh, and the aircraft hits the ground and suddenly stops you're going to be thrown forward and and you could crush the you crush the baby right uh, you know with your chest and uh, but the answer is give them a seat with a child restraint a car seat and a belt and make them really safe. Yep. It's it's double level, you know, second level of safety which is just is just stupid. Yeah. All right, one last item. Uh apparently if you own some really old, well I don't know how old, some older Garmin uh, avionics, I guess that uh, you may have trouble getting them repaired. 25 years old. Yeah, I can't believe they're this old, but that that was one of the uh, the the GNS 430 and 420, 430, some five. I forgot, but they were the first the the first uh, uh, GPS receivers for general aviation. Some of the first GPS receivers for general aviation. You could just put in a uh, an ID of an airport and just and hit the button. It would say, "Fly a heading of zero nine four." And it's uh, 362 miles, and just go that way. And people went, "Whoa, that's really cool!" You didn't have to. You, you didn't have to look out the window. You didn't have to fly from VOR to VOR uh, and kind of zigzag. Um, but and that and they were easy. Well, I shouldn't say they were easy to use because I thought they were actually pretty complicated when I first. I was first trained on them, but... Well, that's because Trescott didn't write the book about them. Well, uh, actually... 
You know, not, not on that I think one. He, I think he, no, you're right. I think the Garmin G1000 is the only thing he did. Um, but, and, and you know what's going to happen is that he's going to listen to this and go, no, no, you idiots. I did something on the Garmin 430. Uh, and I, Max, I tried, but I, my memory is shot. Um, but they were, you know, they were marvelous. And, and of course, since that time in the, in the late 90s, I mean, there have been so many more uh, incredible navigation units on, that have come up on the market now. Um, and, uh, so it, it, Garmin saying, Hey guys, look, we'll do our best, but it's 25 years and we can't guarantee that we'll be able to get the parts to fix these things. So you might want to think about a replacement, but you know, again, but they're, they're not inexpensive. I mean, you know, it's multi-thousand dollars here to, uh, to get a new GPS for a, for a general aviation airplane. Sure. And Garmin says that these, uh, well, starting in next year, 2024, repairs on some of these early devices won't be possible. They say due to multiple component availability limitations. Spare parts, I guess. It's like me. You know, I went to the hospital last summer and the doctor said, oh, man, we'd like to help you. But, you know, we don't make those parts <laughs> don't anymore. Make so I, but somehow I survived. What's up with the geeks? Let's see, David, um, something about Amber Smith. This isn't your Amber. No, this is not my Amber. Um, We are actually having one of our first book lectures of the 2023 season at the museum occurring on Thursday, March 23rd, so the day after we're recording this. Amber Smith is a... um, Army helicopter pilot, flew in Afghanistan and Iraq. She flew OH-58Ds, Kiowa Warriors. And we're going to have her book, Danger Close, and she'll be discussing it. Um, We'll have links in the show notes if you'd like to, or you can always just reach out to me and I can get you the links um, for it. And it'll be the first of a, um, a half a dozen book reviews we'll be doing this year um the next one will be in i believe um late april okay very good yeah we'll put the link in the show notes and let's see micah what have you got for us well episode 37 of the journey is reward podcast is out it's rediscovering japan brian spent about 10 days there we talked about that trip and he had a great time i gotta say and uh, his next trip coming up real soon is uh, back to south africa and upon his return about two hours out of south africa He'll be crossing that three million mile mark and hitting his goal. And I'm just, he did this in just a little over a year's time. He thought he was going to need 18 months, but he got it done in about 13, maybe 14. I think only 13, I'm pretty sure. So just amazing. I wonder if he's going to change the name of the show to Samurai Flyer. (laughs) Or, okay, well, anyway. And then 
The other thing I was going to say is that uh, we found out that uh, the innovations in flight will be happening as a fly-in, as it has been the past few years down at the Udvar-Hazy Center on June 17th. But uh, we also found out that they are keeping it as a fly-in. And the, the indoor presentations that we were once very, very proud and delighted to be a part of uh, just aren't uh, going to uh, to happen, uh, at least this year, probably not any longer. I think this is just an easier way for the museum to do that, and it makes complete sense to me. It's sad, and I'm going to miss going, because uh, I probably won't, but I, I do think that uh, it's, a, it's, it's a great program, and if you want to see a bunch of airplanes and be able to walk up close to them and talk to the pilots, including our good friend Hillel, you should go down and try to visit. Yeah, what a great museum. How about you, Rob? Got anything for us? <laughs> I didn't put anything in the notes, but it just reminded me. Uh, I wanted to mention that uh, yesterday, an envelope went in the mail from uh, from my place, and it uh, it renewed my membership in the American Helicopter. Uh, what's it called? Uh, American Helicopter Association, I think. Uh, museum. Uh, museum. Oh, the museum. Right. I knew. I knew it had something to do with those rotary things. But um, uh, I, you guys have had so many cool events, almost none of which I've been able to attend in per. No, I actually I haven't attended any in person. And I've, I haven't been able to attend the, the book lectures either. But I swear I'm going to make it this term. Good. Good, good. Good. Yeah, I renewed mine a couple of months ago, actually, I think. But one other quick note, since Max uh, uh, Trescott isn't here, uh, he and I had a conversation before he realized he wasn't going to be able to come. And we were talking about the news in the... Uh, in the list, and he said, I just had to put some, because a couple of the stories here were from him, he said, I just had to put them in there, because I didn't want you to look like you were Mr. Know-it-all, and you had all the cool stories, so. <laughs> That's <laughs> but, his uh, And so then, he doesn't show up, and we had to, we had to make do without him. But we uh, soldiered on. We soldiered on. All right, a few, uh, let's see, some feedback. Hey, wait a minute, didn't we hear from Stephen Grant this week? No, we didn't. They didn't do a uh, a plane crazy down. They didn't do an Australia disc segment this week. You know, just when they start addicting us to it again, and then yeah. they stop. This isn't fair at all. Come on, you guys, get to They'll work. They'll be back. They'll be <laughs> the, back. They're, they're coming. They're coming. Listener mail. Uh, Patrick sent in a, a link to an article. Elvis jet is grounded forever. But its new owner is flying high. This is about Elvis Presley's 1962 Lockheed 1329 Jetstar. And the thing is a mess. It's a wreck. Well, it's almost a wreck. The engines are gone. Uh, the plane is pretty rough. I actually saw this aircraft, uh, this plane. Um, uh, yeah, it was the year after the 20th anniversary of his death. So, if you know, whenever Elvis died, that's, that's when I saw it. But in any event, a... Um, a guy in Florida has uh, has purchased the jet, and I think, well, it sounds like originally he was thinking about restoring it, making it flight-worthy, except he got an expert in there to take a look at it and to see what it would take to make that thing flight-worthy again, and it turned out it would cost $5.7 million to make the plane flight-worthy. He only paid uh, 234 uh, yeah, two hundred thirty-four thousand dollars for this thing. So, uh, so he's not going to make it flight worthy, which is kind of sad. Uh, he's not going to restore it, at least not 
to that extent. But what he tends to do is, I don't know, mount it on like an RV frame or something, a chassis, an RV chassis, and, and like drive it around and show it or something like that. So that's the future for Elvis uh, Lockheed Jetstar. So instead of being the Oscar Mayer hot dog mobile, it'll be the Elvis mobile? Yeah. I, I heard Elvis is, has, has passed. Well, that's the rumor. He's left the building. He paid $840,000 for this uh, in uh, 1976, which, uh, according to this uh, piece here, it says it's equivalent today to about $4.4 million. Yeah, the engines alone would be, oh, my God, they would be so expensive. Yeah, I think they had Garrett engines on Yeah, that. 731s. I mean, they they were stage... They were stage three compliant, noise-wise. I, I know they wouldn't be stage four, uh, but if you had to re, if you could replace them, you'd have to replace them with 731. You can still get those today, but uh, you know, a billion, it's got to be a million a crack per engine alone. And then, it's had and then four you have it. to clean the animal. Yeah, and you need four of them. And then you have to clean the critters out of the cabin. Uh, yeah, it's probably not a good idea. And, and in all fairness, the um, Graceland does have and does have the other Jetstar that he bought. He owned two of them. He did. I didn't so, know that. I didn't either. He, yeah, this one. He, this was this was going to be the newest one. He never took delivery of it because he died just shortly after it. It lived out in Roswell forever. So, I I think as far as flying time goes, it it's got less than maybe a thousand hours, if less than that. So, I mean, all of the deterioration is just from sitting out in the desert so long. His Convair 990 and his Jetstar are at um, Graceland. Did you put any of us been to Graceland? Yeah, I was. Oh, you were? Yes. I got my arm twisted into going to Graceland. I had absolutely no interest in going to Graceland. I thought it would be some schlocky tourist trap sort of thing. And it was absolutely the opposite of that. It was a, yeah, it was a very nice, respectful, interesting, historic visit to Graceland. I was completely wrong about uh, about what to ex- expect. I even, I even stayed at the Heartbreak Hotel across the street, you know, to complete the thing. So I, I would actually recommend, even if you're not an Elvis, you know, a huge Elvis fanatic, I think it's a worthwhile uh, destination, actually. I want to go to Dollyland. Um, we almost went to Dollyland, actually. Uh, then COVID hit. There were some people that thought that would be a pretty exciting thing to do. That's another thing that I was kind of lukewarm to. But hey, I'll, you know, I'll go along with anything. Denver wrote to us. Uh, he says, I listen to a lot of ATC recordings. He said, I'm often shocked at the reluctance of pilots to declare an emergency. And he sent in a link to a YouTube short from Sentex Aviation that goes something like this. Are you not an emergency? Negative. No, we have an engine failure, but not an emergency. Oh, not an emergency. Okay, just so an engine failure, but you're not an emergency. Are you over, overweight landing, they want to know? Not at all. No, not even that. Not even that? No. All right. The emergency equipment is standing by. I'll be doing needed. He's got an engine out, and he's not declaring an emergency. Doesn't that seem kind of odd? This is what my wife would call the dreaded pilot ego. 
speaking. Um, There are two main reasons that, at least I've been told over the years, that pilots don't want to declare an emergency. One, they think they're going to get in trouble with with the regulator if they declare an emergency because they're going to learn later that, well, if you had done this or not done that, you wouldn't have declared an emergency. And and all these airplanes that had to get shuffled out of the way for you. Uh, or it is also the pilot's ego saying, I can handle this. It's not a big deal. I don't need special handling. I can, I can do this. I mean, so cut me some slack. I've never heard a conversation like that, though, where the, the pilot says, no, 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 engine failure. No, it's, it's not even an emergency. No, uh, we can, uh, oh, there goes the other one. Um, <laughs> no, no, we can glide. We can glide airplanes fully controllable. We don't know exactly where we're going to hit, but it's not an emergency. Um, yeah, I don't understand the answer. To, you know, I mean, I don't have the answer to Denver's question. I mean, even priority handling. Uh, I, I, the last thing, if I was in a real emergency, I'd care about is how I put it across to ATC. Hey, we need some help. Yeah. Uh, emergency. Yeah, fine. We'll declare an emergency. Uh, but you know, we've got bigger fish to fry right now than worrying about what happens when we get on the ground. I want to get on the ground and, and have to deal with it. All right. Finally, Doug sent in an article Small plane makes incredible landing on Dubai's iconic Burj El Arab helipad. So you may not know the, this must be a hotel. You may not know it by its name, but you have definitely seen the photograph, or a photograph of this. This is the one that's sort of out a little bit into the water. It looks like a giant sail kind of shape. Well, it's got this helipad, this round disc helipad like way up at the top sort of hanging over the edge and uh, an an air racing champion Luke Zapilla uh, he's become the first person to land a winged aircraft on this helipad so this is this is nuts Um, it's only well just under 21 meters in diameter I guess now he had a stole airplane and uh, he made 650 test landings in Poland before doing this. That's a lot of test landings. But I guess if you do something 650 times, you're probably reasonably confident. Yeah, and that's that's 68 feet round, by the way, the 20.76 meters. It's it's less than 70 feet in any direction. So, so you notice that 16 tries wasn't quite enough to make, even 100 tries wasn't quite enough to make him feel really confident that he could do this. Uh, but anyway. This thing is um, 210 meters, this helipad, 210 meters above the ground, 689 feet. My first question, well, my first thought was, this is insane. My my first question was, how did he get the thing off of there? But it's a stole aircraft. He flew it off this helipad. Getting it off, I think, would that's the easy part because you know you, you fly it, it off over the side. It, basically, you know, <laughs> you, 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 even if you don't have the lift, you're gonna, you know, you, you go into yeah. your dive and you'll, you know, you have enough speed and you pull it right up. It's not going to be that much of a problem. My first question was why? I mean, the, the whole point landing in you know less than sixty feet or however short it was, 
It's not a big deal. They do that at Oshkosh all the time. What made it, you know, alarming is it's 700 feet in the air. I mean, what, what's the big deal? It, it's, it's a stunt for the sake of a stunt, you know? Are you not old enough to remember Evil Knievel? Well, actually, I was going to say that. I mentioned this the other night. I never cared about Evil Knievel. I thought it was silly back then, you know? Yeah. I didn't care how many buses he could jump or what canyon he could go over. Did, so, I was going to say, he jumped the Grand Canyon, didn't he? I don't, so he it wasn't the Grand Canyon. It was the Snake River Canyon he tried to oh, do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think he oh, made it. they're all yeah. no, the same. He, oh, he didn't make it? No, I think he broke even more bones. Yeah. I think he's... Had broken like every bone in his body three times or something. If you guys were all my age, you would have actually had the evil Knievel ripcord sky cycle that you could play with. <laughs> okay. And you'd know that the sky cycle took off, and because of a failure, its parachute system immediately oh, right, went right. through. And he, and he, because I was watching Wild World of Sports. On a Saturday afternoon, because that's who would cover these things, he was not able to, and he crashed into the canyon. That's right. I remember that. The thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. Yeah, and the crunch of bones breaking. <laughs> All right, let's wrap this up. Thanks for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com. Direct link to the show notes for this episode is airplanegeeks.com slash 742. If you want to share this episode with your friends or online, that's a really handy way to do it. You can just say airplanegeeks.com slash 742. Our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, David Vanderhoof, where do we find you? Of course, you can find me at the American Helicopter Museum. Um, there'll be a lot of... I will probably be talking about two new exhibits that are going up that I've had personal help with over the personal interest in over the last couple of months. Um, and of course you can find me on social media, etc. And that with that guy, Max flight on talking about drones on the UAV digest. Great. And Rob Mark, how about you? All the usual places, uh, in, in addition to here, of course, I mean, uh, and just again, for those that are old enough to remember, I'm no longer, uh, I no longer have my picture posted at the post office. <laughs> when did they take that down? Oh, uh, I don't know. After I demanded it. Uh, I see. After parole. Micah, how about you? Well, you can find me along with uh, Pasadena Brian Coleman on the Journey is Reward podcast. That's the journeyisreward.org is the website. And I'm also on Twitter at MainFly. That's M-A-I-N-E, like the state of Maine. Fly, F-L-Y, like Brian is almost done flying. And uh, you can find me there. I'm also on Mastodon, but I don't check that too often. But, yeah, I'm still tweeting away sometimes. Yeah. And you can find out where I hang out online at 30,000feet.com including Macedon. You can find me there. Uh, also, if you'd like to get an invitation to our Slack listener team or to our Discord server, you can write us at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com and we'll send you an invitation. So please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Night, everybody. See you real soon. Keep the blue side up and thanks for listening.
they're halfway through the dinner at the restaurant next door. So I think they have 300 people jammed in there. So I think I'm going to go and make an entrance they can't forget and, and, <laughs> and make sure they remember Condor and, <laughs> and, and go there. But hey, but, well, once again, thank you. A real pleasure meeting all of you. And, uh, and, and thank you, Max, for, for, uh, for the interview and the opportunity to be here. And um, I, I hope it went well. And, uh, and I hope yes. my comments were, were ones that you think your listeners will also in, in, enjoy hearing. Yes, I think so. It was great. Thank you so much, Mika. And, and I just have one suggestion for you if you want to make that Uh-oh. splash in the dining room. If okay. you had a suit that was striped the same way as <laughs> the know. airplanes, oh, yes. wouldn't that be incredible? That's uh, an idea. That would be super. I got I to gotta talk with our HR because all <laughs> I got is this. So it was a, <laughs> oh, that's close. I don't think I could make a splash with this one. Yeah, that's a great idea. Rob. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you very much. Have a good evening and, and, and all the best to all of you.